welcome to Hair Dark Materials. I'm Faye, hi! And I'm Rachel, hello! This is a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. In this episode, we're talking about chapter 16 of Northern Lights, The Silver Guillotine. Hello. How are you? Oh, oh God, Rachel, I'm doing so well. Yeah? <laughs> I'm a little bit manic. Um, things have happened in my life, which means it has turned upside down for the last week. I'll tell you about him. Just give me a... I'm just like, <laughs> Just fuck. ramp up to it, it's fine. Yeah. You've got this. You've got your wine. I've got my wine. I, like, I needed wine this time. I'm just going to have a little sip of the wine first. I wonder if you can hear that. Whew. I have not been in my flat for a week uh, because we there was a leak in my flat, which meant that the water had to be turned off, which means that obviously we can't be there. So we have come to our friend Andy, bless his soul. He has taken me and Liam in for the week, which is really fucking good of him because obviously, as we all know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, which my fucking landlord and letting agent seems to forget because that has not urged them on at all. Um... So yeah, uh, we've had to break social distancing with our pal Andy to do that. So thank you, Andy, even though I know you'll never listen. <laughs> and then I've just got loads of other shit going on, like loads of random work stuff um, that's really stressful. And yeah, it's 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 been a bad week and I'm recording from Andy. So I've got like a little makeshift setup of my laptop's perched on the bed in Andy's spare room and the mic's perched on the bedside table, and it's next to the bathroom, so somebody's in there now, so I don't know if you can hear that. Oh, that's some bonus content right there. <laughs> so the audio quality might be a little bit different. I've not got any kind of cushion in, so you might hear me like pick up and put down my wine. There's a fountain outside, so you might hear that. Just just bear with me. Just bear with me. <laughs> we'll all allow you a little bit of extra room on this one, Faye, because I know you've had a really stressful time. Oh, thank you. Also, I've got really bad stress acne, which is upsetting. I always have acne but it's particularly bad at the minute which is very annoying hopefully so we're, we're recording this tonight and hopefully i'll be back in my flat tonight as we're recording and then we should have water in a couple of days time i hope if not we'll be back at andy's <laughs> oh buddy i just it is unfathomable to me that your landlord and letting agent don't understand the urgency of clean running water during a pandemic yeah at which point it is like imperative that you are able to like thoroughly wash your hands when you return from the outside world and just generally also just generally you know clean running water is kind of necessary yeah full stop it is bananas and it's not what you need right now when Mm -hmm. you're already day to day is surreal and weird at the best of times and being displaced because of the water in your flat being fucked up is it's just not what you need yeah the silver lining is that we did get to see we've like got to see Andy and obviously we've not seen any of our friends for like two months so yeah it's like going nice. for a sleepover yeah <laughs> and like Andy lives on his own so he's been like completely on his own for most of the time that we've all been socially distancing so it yeah that has been very nice to see him but I bet I bet he'll be fucking ready to get rid of us <laughs> anyway enough about me how are you <laughs> I'm good I have just been really busy I gave myself shop update to do and I had some commissions that I needed to finish with a deadline that I'm doing this really great thing where despite the fact that uh technically 
there is no social life because everything you can't meet anyone you can't do anything I can't leave the house I've still managed to fill my plate really full and I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed by a lot of the social engagements that are happening because everyone is making such an effort to see each other I'm I'm now struggling to keep up with that on top of like putting pressure on myself to do extra work because I know that I technically in theory should have more time so I'm just finding myself working some really weird hours and then feeling lethargic and struggling to get out of bed in the morning Mm. just all the usual stuff but with the whole like pandemic locked in thing on top of it but it's it's we've been I've been managing pretty good and I'm just really lucky that I live with three other people um oh and befriending a cat in the neighborhood she's my friend now and I will totally post pictures of her on our Instagram because she's beautiful and I'm just really proud of myself that like I I have a I've created a bond with an animal that she doesn't live with us I don't know who she belongs to but she pops into our garden and comes along for like head scratches and it makes me really happy that is cute yeah oh we also did a thing on Sunday where we live tweeted along with the the his dark materials Twitter and Jack Thorne and Jane Tranter and Lauren Balf our friend of the pod Lauren Balf uh, and Daphne Keaton let's not forget her uh, we live tweeted along with them for the first episode of the TV show and I fucking loved it so much I had such a great time it was so much fun I love that like they announced they were doing a thing where we're totally just going to glom onto this and enjoy the crap out of it and we did it was really fun it was so great and like a lot of our listeners got involved with us and that was really cool and we also got confirmation from the writer jack thorne that the master and the librarian are a couple it's canon it 100 percent is a thing yes i'm here for it yes so Um, that was fun and then rach you tweeted along to uh, today at the time of recording with philip palmer's little afternoon tea yeah it was really lovely i it's just it was lovely I was just saying to Faye earlier, it was kind of like trying to have a video chat with your dad because he had his iPad and he kept, he was like showing everyone the workroom. There was something really lovely and wholesome about the fact that like he was having a little struggle with the camera, like anybody does ever on a video chat. And his workspace is just as messy as all the best workspaces. And he was showing like his maps and his manuscript and was talking a lot about his writing process and it was just really interesting to kind of just get mm. like a little window into his life and we have it on good authority that he makes one of the best cups of tea in the world so oh there well you go. I, there you go my new life's goal on like the imaginary unachievable bucket list would be have a philip holman cup of tea hey you never know we might get that we might get that one day i'm gonna pop it on the list Phil. of people <laughs> if you ever want to make me a cup of tea I'm here for it. But yeah, if you want to check out any of those like Twitter threads, I mean, for the TV show one, it might be a bit hard to follow unless you're watching the TV show, but I had a laugh. So yeah, <laughs> I did some funny tweets, I think. So you can have a look at those. But if you want to check out Rachel's as well, because hers make more sense than mine, uh, we are on Twitter at HDMPod, as you probably already know. But yeah, go and check that out. We had an email. Yeah, we bloody love an email. We bloody love an email. So the email was from Katie, who is actually one of our patrons now, and uh, she has been catching up on the pod. She sent us some information about the lantern slides, and we've had some of that info before. Listener Laurel 
a long time ago now actually sent us the lantern slides so when we get to the end of each book we will be going through them and it'll be really exciting because Rachel and I have never read them so it'll be mm. completely new so once we get to the end of Northern Lights we'll do the first one but Katie said to us that basically she'd found out some facts and she couldn't stop thinking about it so she figured she should send us an email and we appreciate that a lot we do so she's been re- rereading her copy of The Golden Compass and as she catches up on our episodes she knew that there were differences between editions based on publishing decisions but she's been shocked to hear how many differences we've found between our two copies she says it's made it extra fun to read along and compare my version and to be honest same <laughs> like yeah. i'm always like yes i love the differences <laughs> so for some reason i feel like we're discovering like a scandal i know it's right? not scandalous but in my head i'm like <gasps> every time i'm like <gasps> shocking i feel like a detective finding yeah, out the scandals totally yeah so <laughs> She said that her copy includes the lantern slides. There's apparently a quote from Philip Pullman at the beginning of the lantern slides that's like an introduction of it. And he says that he doesn't think that an author can go back to revise or improved published works and must focus on new writing. And she asks what we make of this statement given the changes that he has decided to make. And I honestly, when I got this email, I fucking cackled. Like, I laughed out loud (laughs) that he'd said that. And then all of these changes. So I have, like, a few thoughts, right? So, number one, he might not know that these changes have been made. Like, when does it come out of the author's hand and into the hand of the publisher? Like, what rights does the publisher have over changes to the books? He might not even know that this has happened. Or, if he knows, he might not have approved it. So, one of the interesting things he actually said in the afternoon tea was um, about relinquishing your work to the publisher and part of the contract you're signing with the publisher. A lot of it was to do with translations, actually. You've just got to put your faith in the publisher that they're going to try their best to get the best versions of your work out there so for example being translated into different languages it's not like philip can read read through and check that the latvian copy is like true to his english copy because he's not a master translator he's an author yeah so he's so you know at a certain point you just have to let go and trust the publishers and that's why having a good relationship with the publishers is important but also mentioned how he really really dislikes the golden compass as a title yeah but it was something he had to suck up in order to get the book out there and that is a thing that if he could change it on other copies he would Mm. and he's also talking about how the secret commonwealth he loves the word he loves the turn of phrase the secret commonwealth he found it somewhere else but that turn of phrase the phrasing doesn't exist in other languages so it's had to be called like ah. the secret community oh that's in so some interesting translations yeah so i wonder if a lot of the changes or some of the changes have occurred because of pressure from publishers and various translations that have occurred or like miscommunications in the chain that is the publishing thing yeah i i think like That's the explanation that I'm kind of leaning towards now, obviously from Katie's email and seeing what he'd said about revisions. But also it depends on what he thinks of revision means. So obviously we've only seen like little things here and there, like words here and there, like demons here and there. Obviously no plot points have been changed. So he might not, he might see those revisions as being just really small and he might mean something bigger. But part, yeah, like now that we've spoke, like we've talked it through, I kind of think, it probably does mean it probably was a publishing decision that he might 
not know about or might not have control over. Yeah. Having said that, with the whole cult of hair thing, one of the explanations I found online was that in an interview, he had said that he saw Kidman's performance, he saw her, her and was like, oh, that's right. And he did change it. But I can't find the original source material. Mm. I can't fact check it. So I feel like I don't know. I don't know where I sit with it. We can put it on our list for yeah. interview questions for Philip Pullman. Yeah, when we when we get that all important Phil interview. We'll learn. I, I feel like we've done quite a lot of those and I can't remember any of them. So listeners, if you remember <laughs> us saying that we've got questions for Philip Pullman, please let me know what they are because I'm going to put them in a document. It's like, it'll be like my wish list. Yeah. Some more good news on the interview front. So this episode is coming out on the... 4th of May. Yes. And on the 7th of May, we are interviewing Russell Dodgson, who is the VFX supervisor on the His Dark Materials TV show. We've had this in the works for a long time, actually, and we're really excited to chat to Russell. Um, So if you do have any questions for him, please send them to us. You can tweet us, you can send us a message on Instagram or Facebook, so it's at HDMPod, or you can email us at herdarkmaterialspod at gmail.com. Yeah, we're super excited. We can't wait to ask him all about that fucking little monkey prick. I'm so excited. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really excited to ask him about this because this TV series is so rich in VFX work because of just the nature of it. Like just even going into tackling a project like this must have been so daunting. I'm really excited to hear all about the processes they've used. And we're not sure when that'll be out yet because it depends on when we can edit and stuff. But we'll let you know, keep you updated. But yeah, send in those questions because we'd love to get loads of questions from you guys. We love having listener questions. And we found as well that the people that we interview, so like Lauren and then Dan and Colleen, they really enjoyed the listener questions too. So yeah, please send them in and we'll do our best to ask them all if we can. One of the other things before we get into the episode that we wanted to mention is that you might have seen that there is a making of the His Dark Materials TV show. We put a poll on Twitter and Instagram and asked you guys if you wanted us to do a bonus episode and you, I think every single person said yes. So (laughs) we will be doing that. We can't tell you when that'll be coming out, but hopefully it'll be like pretty soon-ish. If you've watched it, let us know what you think because we're super excited to watch it. So yeah. Also, I keep meaning to mention this and I don't. On our Instagram, I have been trying to do a Fan Out Friday, a Her Dark Materials pod Fan Out Friday. So basically, I've just been scouring Instagram, trying to share fan art of the TV series, of the books, of the film, and kind of featuring a different character each week or just featuring a collection that feels appropriate for the chapter that we've covered that week. I've been really enjoying it. There are some crazy talented people out there. And it just, it genuinely makes me heart warmed to yeah. look at all the artwork that's out there and it's really inspiring i'm also trying not to spoil with my drawings so i've got a big old list of things that i'm going to share when we get to the second third books that are relevant to those yeah so if you've done any artwork share it and use the hashtag hdm pod fan art friday and then i'll be able to find it and see it or send it to us in an email mm-hmm. or dm it to us i bloody love seeing people's pictures and artwork it makes me happy inside yeah yeah it's fucking great there's been we've shared some amazing art and it's such a nice thing to do and it connects us with more people and we love to connect with people that love the books and the tv series so yeah it's great so yeah keep an eye out uh, every friday um and yes and like rich said send send us your shit we'll share it yeah (laughs) say Yes. I have a question for you. Yes, tell me. What would your demon have been this week? So, 
I thought about this for a long, hard time, and I think that my demon this week would have been a little hermit crab. Aww. Yeah, because, like, although I haven't carried my home on my back, I've carried a bunch of my stuff, including this podcast mic, <laughs> on my back, <laughs> back and forth between Andy's and our flat. So, yeah. I did I did look for, like, really manic animals, but I thought kind of moving my life between the two places kind of made more sense for a hermit crab. So, yeah, a little hermit mm-hmm. crab. Although, think of, like, a little frantic hermit scared like deer in headlights hermit crabs oh whenever i think of hermit crabs i think of that episode of the simpsons that has a hermit crab in it i can't remember why but it's there's just a bit at the end of the episode where homer throws like a duff can like a beer can out of the car window and a little hermit crab climbs inside it and yeah. crawls away with the can as a shell and it's like depressing but also cute yeah i remember that too and i'm not i'm, I'm not really a massive weirdly Simpsons vividly fan. right yeah 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 <laughs> yeah definitely uh what would your demon have been a really boring it's just still that same like pissed off house cat nothing's changed so my demon hasn't changed and also the amount of times this week where i've turned to my housemate and been like imagine if we had a house cat how great would it be like imagine yeah. if right now when we were sat watching tv there was a cat like right there how great would i just really want a pet <laughs> yeah it would suit my moods i've been a bit up and down this week as well and as we know mm. cats are temperamental and that's how I've, I've been feeling i've been snippier than usual um yeah i feel I'm just kind of struggling to stay cheerful and i wouldn't say that cats struggle to stay cheerful i would just say they're not cheerful people yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, i feel that yeah all right shall we get into it oh my god let's get into it yeah. At last chapter, Lyra was finally reunited with Roger. She went exploring and found the demons of the severed children. Kaiser swooped in and helped her to free them. Mrs. Coulter arrived. <laughs> in this chapter, Lyra heads into the ceiling to spy on an important meeting in the conference room. She is discovered spying on the meeting and the men decide to silence her by cutting Pan away. Oh, oh. my god. And Mrs. Coulter finds her and saves the day. Right? What? <laughs> oh my god, let's get straight into this. <laughs> ah, I'm so god, this chapter man. Right. I have so many feelings. So many feelings. So, first thing we see is Lyra. So Mrs. Coulter's just arrived in the airship. Lyra's trying to like hide her face so that Mrs. Coulter doesn't see her. And can I please mm. nickname this chapter the Die Hard chapter? Because <laughs> oh. Lyra is so on it. She is like straight in there with an action plan and then she's crawling around in the ceiling and it's all Die Hard. Does it upset you that I've never seen Die Hard so I don't know what you're talking about? Okay, so just think about the episodes of Buffy called School Hard where she's crawling around in the ceiling. Yep, 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 yep. It's yep, like I'm that. With you, I'm with you. Okay, cool, cool. cool. So it was going to be one reference or the other, or both. <laughs> I feel like Jake Peralta would be really disappointed in the fact that I haven't seen Die Hard and it upsets me. <laughs> we'll fix it. We'll fix it at Christmas. <laughs> Well-known Christmas movie. One of the first things that we see is her saying, time enough later to worry about what she'd say when they came to face to face. She had another problem to deal with first. And I'm just like, how can you just put your worries aside like that? Especially, like, she's been so terrified of Mrs. Coulter and she's almost come face to face to her, like, with her, sorry. Mrs. Coulter is here and she's like, she'll worry about that later. I guess she just doesn't have 
the luxury of being able to worry about it right now. Like she physically doesn't have the brain space to be able to do all the things she needs to do. So she must be just like a master of compartmentalizing. I wish I was like that, to be honest. Same. Yeah. She's really, she just does a really good job. She knows what the plan is. She's worked out the plan. She's already told Billy and Roger to tell all the boys about what the plan is. And she knows that that's what she has to do. And she also knows she has to hide her cold weather clothes. Yeah. So she can get at them easily. Yeah. The thing I don't understand is, so she hides the cold weather clothes in the space that Roger told her about in the ceiling. Mm Mm-hmm. But she has to move a locker and climb on top of the locker to get those clothes out. Yeah. And I know that's a good hiding spot, but it's not exactly easy to access. It's not good in a pinch, is it? No. Like, if someone's chasing you and you're like, shit. Or, like, you've got a time frame where you need to get out of somewhere. It's not exactly an easy, easy spot. But then I suppose, where else would you hide them? Yeah, it's not like you can stick them under the bed. Yeah, we haven't heard really anything about the kids' dormitories that would suggest that there's anywhere else to put them that the adults wouldn't find them true fair enough i just i get it though i get it like i mean you're not getting them out if you're getting chased or if like you're not getting them are you You, you're not like fucking pushing a locker over the room in a pinch to get your furs out it has it would have had to be like planned yeah which i guess is why she knows she's got a plan but it's um it's a lot to factor into your plan is getting back to the room and climbing on a locker Mm. to get your stuff out but she hides the alethiometer up there too which is important i'm gonna say that i was quite surprised that she did that that she hid the alethiometer Because I thought that she, so far we have seen her keep it on her all the time where she can. So I was quite surprised to see her leave it behind. Yeah. Also, I'm surprised she hasn't consulted it since she's been at Bolvanger. That's very true, actually. Yeah, because she could have asked it when the Egyptians were coming. Yeah. And if the Egyptians were coming and if Yorick was coming. Yeah, if Fadakura was alive, if John Farr was alive. Like, she could have asked it these things and it would have been like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, interesting actually. Uh, maybe she's just like she's just been so fucking like busy is probably the wrong word, but you know, like just moved around with the other kids, like yeah. doing sewing and then doing exercise and then going to bed. And like obviously, I don't think she would have wanted. Although, like we see the other girls in her dorm like form more of a uh, relationship in this chapter. I don't think she would have wanted them to see the alethiometer just yet. Yeah, I guess she doesn't want to draw attention to herself, and that's yeah. a cool thing that would do that. So. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, she hides it and then she says to Pan that they've still got to pretend to be stupid and then I was like, does that mean that they've got to carry on with that Lizzie Brooks character, which I assume that's what she means. Yeah. She also says that they're like, obviously she's thinking now about like when Mrs. Coulter finds her, she, they can't say anything about the Egyptians or about Yorick. There's a good quote here about Lyra and Mrs. Coulter. So... Because Lyra now realised, if she hadn't done before, that all the fear in her nature was drawn to Mrs. Coulter as a compass needle is drawn to the pole. All the other things she'd seen, even the hideous cruelty of the indecision, she could cope with. She was strong enough, but the thought of that sweet face and gentle voice, the image of that golden playful monkey, was enough to melt her stomach and make her pale and nauseous. That's so good. I love that. So good. And then, what do you think it is about mrs coulter that lyra's so scared of because she mentions in that paragraph even the indecision stuff she can deal with but she can't deal with seeing mrs coulter i'm not sure what i think it is i wonder if it's because mrs coulter is dangerous in a way that lyra can't reconcile Mm -hmm. so like indecision as far as she understands it it's like it's a procedure it's an operation it's whatever they refer to it as a cut it's 
a form of violence that is in some way physical. The brutality and the bloodshed that she's witnessed, it's physical violence. Whereas Mrs. Coulter, the threat that she represents is very, it's not violent. It's its more to do with being controlled and mm-hmm. it's maybe a form of aggression or a form of combativeness that Lyra just does not understand how to fight mm. or how to like prevent or work against because she just doesn't understand it. Um, and maybe that's it. I don't know. Yeah, I think it goes back to the point that we made last episode or the episode before where it's, she doesn't know how to read Mrs. Coulter. Like every kind of bad guy or even every character that we've seen so far has been very straight up and been like, look, this is a bad guy. This is a good guy. And there's been no in between. Whereas obviously Mm -hmm. we know that Mrs. Coulter is not, is very much an antagonist. She still has that like sweet demeanor about her and that very umbridgey like, I'm so proper and sweet and lovely but actually I'm gonna fucking kidnap you and shit so maybe it's because Lyra's so used to things being black and white yeah and the fact that she was so drawn to her when they first met and was in a way betrayed or like tricked by Coulter because of the fact that she was so drawn to her she was so taken with the idea of her being Lyra's like mentor and all of this stuff and she looked up to her so much that it is having that entirely flipped on its head and this person that you looked up to being the enemy must really fuck with your head. Especially then finding out that that person's your mum. Like... Yeah, it's like a betrayal, isn't it? Yeah. So... I think she just does not know how to deal with it as well because it's all ways of fighting and ways of acting that she doesn't necessarily understand. Even Mm. though we've seen her main form of defence is to lie and stuff. I think she knows... Coulter knows too much about her for her to be able to use her usual forms of defence against... Yeah. Her as well. That's very know. true. No, it's true. It's, it's a tricky one. And that bloody monkey. <laughs> that little monkey prick. Although I'm excited because we've not seen him for a while. We haven't. Like, yeah, like we were saying last chapter, I'm like pumped for this because I'm ready. I'm ready for a bit of Mrs. Coulter and that little monkey prick. Here for that big sea energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So she tries to think positive by saying that the Egyptians are coming and that Yorick's coming. She heads back to the canteen. And all the kids are talking about the Zeppelin and Miss Coulter. And there's like lots of shit flying around here between the kids. The One of the things that we said when she uh, said that she'd write the letters to the parents and then you see her throw them in the bin at the end of the chapter and that's when you kind of first realise that she's a dick, right? Yeah. And then they're like, she said she'd write to my mum and dad and I bet she never. Yeah, she definitely fucking didn't. She definitely didn't. That letter is ashes, my that, friend. I that went straight in the fucking bin. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, was it a fire? Was it? it was a fire. That went straight in the fucking fire. Didn't even go in the bin. Yeah. <laughs> They're all chatting about what they think that she does really, right? So Yeah, we know that the monkey has a reputation for attacking other people's demons because one of the kids says, that monkey, he was the worst. He caught my carossa and he nearly killed her. I could feel weak. Mm-hmm. It was that moment with the monkey attacking Pan that really, really solidified the fear and venomousness of Mrs. Coulter as a character yeah. and the fact that it's not just because Lyra was getting into an altercation with Coulter that the monkey attacked Pan he just does it casually as like his day job when they're kidnapping children yeah it's not cool <laughs> absolutely it's not fucking cool at all so they're all really frightened Lyra finds Annie and the others and they sit down and then she tells them the escape plan that she told Billy and Roger to like spread around and stuff and she tells them that it's all organised and I was like did you do much organising? You kind of just told Roger and, and uh, Billy to spread the message. I was like, mm, yeah. Okay. 
It's, it's all organised because I'm telling you and that's how it's organised. Yeah. But yeah, she uh, tells them they have to know where to get their cold weather clothes and um, yeah. that the signal to go and do that is the fire alarm going off like how it did that that very afternoon. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think just for me, because I'm just like a very organised person, I was like, she's like, oh, everything's organised. I'm like, hmm, but have you thought about this, 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 this and this? <laughs> I like, don't think it's that organised. <laughs> have you done a risk assessment of the situation, Lyra? <laughs> I don't think you have. Where's the spreadsheet? <laughs> <laughs> show me you're working yeah right the message then gets passed around the canteen so the atmosphere had changed and it becomes more hopeful i think here we go outside the children had been energetic and eager for play and then when they had seen mrs coulter they were bubbling with a suppressed hysterical fear but now there was a control and purpose to their talkativeness lyra marveled at the effect that hope could have i really like that i really love that just in the general hubbub of a room you can just feel the difference between the moods yeah definitely and i think the fact that they're all children is instrumental in that as well because i think children are less they don't hide their feelings as much or they don't know how to hide their feelings as much as children i feel like Mm. maybe if it was adults it would be have been a little bit more subdued yeah (laughs) i'm trying to imagine them doing all of this while still remaining subtle and yeah I don't think it's happening, but also, you know, they're they're doing their best. And I also think the grown-ups are oblivious enough to the goings-on of children that they wouldn't notice the difference in the mood. I think it's just the kids that will. Yeah, that's very true. The atmosphere in the room had changed and was hopeful, but only for a short period of time because Lyra's keeping an eye on the doorway. She's kind of like catching a few glimpses of Coulter. Coulter kind of like looks in at the happy smiling children and the room just goes silent because all the kids are like absolutely petrified and she just smiles and walks on without a word and I'm just like is that just what she's used to happening is she just used to silencing whatever room she walks into because I would be like what the fuck is happening why have all these like happy chatting talkative kids just gone dead silent when I've walked in or is she like yep that's that's the way it goes when I walk into a room Maybe it's a power thing. Maybe she likes it. Maybe that's why she does it. Like, maybe that's... Yeah. Her personality is like that. And you can't fucking kidnap children without enjoying power, right? Yeah. I think that... I think that she likes it. You think it's like a smug, satisfied smile, potentially? Yeah. And I think it's a conscious choice for her to, like, instill that fear into people. I don't think that she just has that. I think that she chooses to do that. And obviously she's built it up over time. And I think that she wants that to be a thing. Definitely. I think I could see her witnessing the effect the, the effect she has on a room and being like, yes, good. But also, yeah. <laughs> I just love that it's a part of her life. It's just like, yeah, just whatever room I walk into, everyone just goes dead quiet and stares at me. But it's fine. <laughs> it's all right. It's, fine. it's, fine. it's what I want from life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when she she's like she goes and then the kids all start talking normally again. And then Lyra asks where they go and talk, like the adults. Um and Annie says that they go to the conference room and that she was taken there once and basically it was a boring lecture where she stood there and they just told her to do stuff. And they told her to do stuff like show how far away like her demon can go from her and things like that. So they're obviously like parading her around to like whoever's in this conference to be like, This is how far a demon can go away from a child and blah 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 and then she says she was hypnotized and i was like what like how and 
I'm, I mean, I was going to ask why, but I know why, and I don't think we need to... We know that they're fucking dicks, so I, I, a why doesn't come into it, I don't think, but... Also, how? It's just interesting that it's just casually, like, dropped in, as in, like, oh, yeah, and then he hypnotised me and did some other things, and it's like, did, did what? I'd be absolutely freaking the fuck out if I was hypnotised and I didn't know what had happened. Exactly. Like, the fact that just these men doing things to her while she's hypnotised is just fucking horrendous and like and that we don't know what and there's a, a sinister ellipsis after it which i don't appreciate what i assume is they did it so they could talk more freely about what they're talking about and she wouldn't remember mm. and be traumatized or something but i i don't i don't appreciate it she says that uh she bets that the adults are scared of mrs collar too which i think is fucking fair enough they probably are and they're gonna pretend that the fire drill went well yeah. even though it definitely didn't because yeah. they're gonna try and bullshit their way out of this i know it <laughs> <laughs> And then Lyra stays close to the rest of the girls for the rest of the day and tries to stay in inconspicuous. They did all all the usual stuff that we've talked about, so like the sewing and the playtime, etc. Um, and then the kids become aware that like the adults are like humming around them, and there's like anxious groups of like the grown-ups talking. And then Lyra guesses that they've found that the demons had escaped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well done, Lyra, for working that one out. Also, like it took a long time for the shit to hit the fan for that one. Yeah. Right. You'd think that they'd have people like checking on that shit all the time, right? Right. It's kind of one of the scariest rooms in the in the whole place. Like, why isn't there a permanent guard on it twenty four seven? But we're about to get all the excuses about that later, anyway. <laughs> yes, we are. The girls head to bed then, and Lyra decides to trust them, which is nice of her because I think this is the first time, apart from like Roger and maybe Billy Costa, as in like children, that she's actually thought, you know what? I'm gonna let these people in on my little secret. And trusts them with, like, actually doing a job. Yeah, not the whole secret, though. No, but, like, she trusts them with actually doing a job for her that could actually make or break the the task that oh, she's yeah. going to give herself. She asks if the adults ever come round to see if the kids are sleeping, and apparently they only look in once. So she says she's going to go up into the ceiling, and Annie interrupts her and says that she'll go with her, and I fucking love this bit. Yay, Annie. Is. So, yeah, Annie is doing a really good job of being a best friend. Yeah, she's doing so well. And obviously I put a sticker on this next bit because it's about demons. Yes, I love this as well. Right? So like they're demons, they have a bit of a tussle, right? Lyra doesn't want Annie to go with her because they'll be more likely to get caught and she needs someone to keep a lookout and it just doesn't make sense for her to go to. Yeah. They're two demons who are staring at each other. Pantalaemon as a wildcat, Annie's Carillion as a fox. They were quivering, Pantalaemon uttered the lowest, softest hiss and bared his teeth. And Carillion turned aside and began to groom himself unconcernedly. And then Annie just kind of, she's like, okay, then I won't come. Just backs down. Yeah. yeah. And they say it's common for struggles be- uh, between children to be settled by their demons in this way, with one accepting the dominance of the other. Their humans accepted the outcome without resentment on the whole, so Lyra knew that Annie would do as she asked. Which is interesting, again, because it kind of, um, we were talking about this last chapter, weren't we? It, it makes a point of saying that children's demons do this. So then what happens with adults' demons? Do they not do this anymore? Is that a thing that you grow out of? It's interesting because it, it makes me think of the way that the fact that demons are animals, how that might impact you as a human. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like demon animals establishing dominance over one another is a very animal thing. It's a very animalistic thing. And the fact that it's something that humans just accept. It's like bringing much more of an animal aspect to being human. Yeah. If that yeah, makes sense. Definitely. But then like maybe that's why then, because that's quite 
reminiscent of being a child, right? Being a child is a lot more animalistic than being a, an adult. Yeah, and that whole thing of like you do something that says you're dominant and the other person backs down because you don't because you don't have the words yet to explain yeah. your situation or to have that verbal altercation. So perhaps the physical element plays a much bigger role it, yeah it is interesting i wonder if it is just kids or if it ever happens with adults i can't yeah i like it i like it a lot i'm here for it they all then give clothing to like pad out lyra's bed because they want to they want to show that she's still there because they were saying that the adults come in they like shine a torch around but they don't really check so if that they like pad out her bed so it looks like lyra's asleep then they won't really know any like anything different so they do that and she make sure the curse is clear, and then hops up into the ceiling. So this sounds like my fucking worst nightmare. And this is the bit where it's like die hard. <laughs> Honestly. Or that bit in school hard in Buffy. Yeah. When Buffy's in the ceiling and Spike is like, someone's in the ceiling. <laughs> and he's like, mm. yeah. stabs a little sword up. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I'm very claustrophobic. I fucking hate this. Like these descriptions of her being in the ceiling. I'm like, mm. no fucking thank you. I do not want it. I would never do this absolutely not the thing that gets me is the fact that the metal grating she's having to crawl on is is sharp and i just it just really gets me all those little tiny cuts and scrapes must be absolutely horrid and um yeah she's so tough she's hard as nails alira she really is yeah i have so much respect for her and how scrappy she is like i'd be whining this whole time i just wouldn't do it (laughs) she's like a child and i wouldn't do that as an adult so i mean we wouldn't fit but that's true (laughs) If they were, if they were made a version of it that was proportionate to my size that it was for Lyra, I would still not do it ever. It's like when they get you to do if you go caving or weaseling, which is like caving but above ground, using like big boulders and stuff. It's one of the things they love to try and get you to do is like just shimmy down this gap where you can only go on your belly. And Absolutely not. The helmet you're wearing is scraping against the sides. That's fun, isn't it, kids? And you're like, no, this is traumatizing. Yeah, horrendous. And that was like outdoor pursuits weekends that you'd sign up for at school (laughs) could not ever do that i can't even go through those do you know when you're a kid and there's like you do those assault courses in pe and there's like those little weird like snake things look a bit like a slinky yeah and sometimes you see them on like dog training things yes i can't even do that really yeah because there's a point where you're halfway through and you're you're completely enclosed and no thank you nowhere <laughs> fair enough <laughs> yeah i i lose my mind at being in in small spaces i can't i can't do it you learn a new thing every day rich did you not know that about me before <laughs> i didn't know that i will i'll cancel that um that holiday i had planned for us where we spent the entire time in small tubes <laughs> <laughs> please do i don't want it don't the hamster it. holiday is cancelled <laughs> oh god so they're up in the ceiling she tells pan it's just like being back in jordan in the retiring room pan sasses her and i love this It's just like being back in Jordan, Pan, she whispered, looking in the retiring room. If you hadn't done that, none of this would have happened, he whispered back. I was like, yes, Pan, sass the shit out of her. Mm -hmm. But also I love a callback like this. I love when an author points out the moment that triggered the entire plot starting. And I love when you think back at your own life about it. So like the decisions that you've made or the things that you've done that have entirely changed the course of your life Mm. so even just thinking about like what university you decided to go to yeah what school you went to like i think the biggest decision you make as a young person is like what you decide to do when you leave formal education like if you go to university if you decide to do an apprenticeship if you decide to go into work and those decisions 
if you think about taking any of those other forks, the people you've met in your life would be completely different. The places you've lived would com- be completely different. Yeah, definitely. And like, sometimes it's like an anxiety hole that I go down or like a weird little spirally hole that I go down. Part of me really loves thinking about it and part of me is just like, what if you made all the wrong decisions? Don't think about it. Um, yeah. But just things like making those decisions and thinking about all the people you have in your life right now that you might not even have met if a decision was made differently. Yeah. It freaks me out, but it fascinates me and I love it. And thinking about the fact that Lyra might not have met Yorick, she mm. might not have met Lee, she might not have befriended the Egyptians in the same way and just still been trying to like commit Grand Theft Boto on the, on a monthly basis. Like you just, it's insane how much her life has changed from that one decision to hide and spy in the retiring room, which was a standard prank for Lyra, really. Yeah. I love that Philip's just gone, that was the moment. That was Lyra's moment. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. But also, kind of the opposite of that, I suppose, is that we know that there's some kind of prophecy about Lyra. So we know that she would have been involved in something, at least at some point. So whereas if she wasn't in the retiring room, she might not have made all of the decisions that has led to where she is now. It's very mm-hmm. probable that she would have gone on, had to have gone on some kind of journey that would have been played out in a different way. That is true. I think she still may have ended up at Coulter's if she hadn't gone to the retiring room because Coulter was a factor yeah. that I think was out of, out like separate from that situation with Azriel, but she might not have. Yeah. And that might have made her take longer to realise what Coulter was doing and lose her infatuation with Coulter. Yeah. And then I also think it would have completely changed the way she thought about Azriel because she he would have still have just been like fun distant uncle and she wouldn't have felt as in cahoots with him and perhaps bonded to him by having saved his life that one time. That's true. Very true. Interesting. Okay. So, love it. We're getting so deep in all the little things. We are. We are. are. (laughs) So, they set off in the conference room in the ceiling and they have to crawl on their hands and knees and squeeze under like ducks and stuff and honestly it's just horrendous. I can't even... And and then this like she cuts her knees and like her hands on the metal grates that you mentioned, which is awful. I hate it. Oh god, awful. And so she knew where she was and she could see her furs at the other end to like guide her back if she needed to go back. But then I was like, How are you gonna turn around? You just have, have to like weirdly crawl backwards. Yeah, I just get more cuts and scrapes trying to turn around. Yeah. Just, ugh, yeah. In my head for some reason. I'm just like almost imagining her crawling along like a cheese grater and that's not oh, helping. Oh no, that's horrible. What a horrible fucking visual. They're talking about all the like, yeah, all the way that the panels are so scrapey and stuff and that's like the level of texture I'm imagining on the metal and I hate it. I don't know why I've done it to myself. No, thank, thanks for doing it to me as well. Appreciate Sorry. <laughs> I apologise. So she eventually gets to the conference room. She places like her ear to the panel to listen. She can hear people in there. It sounds like they're eating dinner as they're talking and we learn that there are four voices in there, including Mrs. Coulter, and the other three are men. Mm-hmm. So Mrs. Coulter's questioning them about the escaped demon in her gentle musical voice. She's so musical. She's so umbridge that, again, sorry, drink, take a shot, whatever, Harry Potter reference, but yeah, so umbridge, so umbridge. Also, now that... I've read Gentle Musical Voice in a more intense manner. I'm imagining every line sung. It's like, but who is in charge of supervising that section? And then the guy's like, wow. a student called McKay. Oh my God, it's like Lim is. I'm here for it. Right? Yeah. Oh keep my God. Eye, keep an ear out for Rachel's musical version. His dark material's the musical. I would watch that musical. Scored by Rachel Hayes. <laughs> oh, I can't write the music. 
I'll just like over enthusiastically listen to the music. They have a big conversation about who they think like the demons are and stuff. And I kind of, I didn't skim through this obviously because I always read the chapter twice. But when I was reading through, I was like, I'm not sure we need to go into that much detail about this because obviously we love Mrs. Coulter and we want to hear what she has to say. But there's like a bit of a back and forth between them. Like one of the men actually like tries to like sass her and he's like, actually, no. And I'm like, fucking hell, mm. you've got some fucking balls, mate. I would not have done that with Mrs. Coulter. She like says that all of the adults in the station are suspects. And then the guy's like, well, have you thought that it might be a child? Mm. Yeah, because every adult had some kind of task to do that kept them completely focused throughout the fire drill. I really like the way that Mrs. Coulter is dealing with this whole situation. So the way that she's hosting the meeting, I can imagine if they were writing a like powerful and intimidating male character, they might have made him like shout the room out and cuss the room out and called everyone idiots and stuff. But she's sitting there in this very calm, calculated, cold manner and just they know they're in trouble. So she doesn't need to shout at them. And the way that she's just saying everything in this cold way very musical very calm but very cold mm. and like it's almost that like i'm not angry i'm disappointed yeah kind of voice that i'm imagining i love the way that she's holding control of the situation without having lost her temper at them because she could legitimately just have a massive go at them and shout mm. and she's not she's um doing a really good job of being like well we'll do better at it next time won't we <laughs> do you know who all because i was just trying to think that's a really interesting point and i was trying to think if there are like any like male characters in pop culture that are similar because I was going to like make a point of like oh it's only female characters that we see this kind of trope with but actually it made me think I'm so sorry for another Harry Potter reference but it made me think of Voldemort because he's very calm and he has the same kind of demeanor obviously you wouldn't ever call him sweet or like musical voice but he very rarely loses his shit he's very like he has a very calm presence and a very terrifying presence because he seems so calm. And I feel like it's quite similar vibes here. Yeah, I think it's that being calm, but simultaneously unpredictable yes. that makes it so scary as well. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because like with Voldemort, you never know where, whether he's going to fucking hug someone or scream at them. And it's it's quite similar with Mrs. Coulter. It's, yeah, so there's a specific quote that I felt did it really well so he's just given his whole big excuse of why everything went wrong and she said and what are you going to do to investigate no on second thoughts don't tell me please understand dr cooper i'm not criticizing out of malice we have to be quite extraordinarily careful as it was an atrocious lapse to have allowed both alarms to be on the same circuit that must be corrected at once Possibly the Tartar officer in charge of the guard could help with your investigation, undermining his authority and saying someone else needs to help. Yep. I merely mention that as a possibility. <laughs> Where were the Tartars during the drill, by the way? I suppose you've considered that. And I love that she's like, I'm going to make you feel absolutely minuscule with the way that I'm saying this in a really yep. calm way. Yeah, definitely. As if, like, he knows how important it is. He knows how much he's fucked up. But she's just reminding him in like a really great like patronizing yeah. intense way yes <laughs> no i love that as well yeah so, yeah so then after that she asks asks them about the new separator and mm-hmm. we learn a little bit about the history of how they started the process of separation yeah. and, and how it's advanced to what they have now 
Yeah, definitely. So they say that there's been a real advance. So with the first model, they could uh, we could never entirely overcome the risk of the patient dying of shock, but we've we've improved that no end. Uh, and then they mentioned that the Skralins did it better by hand, and that but they had centuries of practice to do that. Uh, so they say, but simply tearing was the only option for some time. However distressing that was to the adult operators, I lost my shit reading this. So. If you remember, we had to discharge quite a number for reasons of stress-related anxiety. I'm like, oh, you're fucking stressed, are you? That you're literally fucking pulling children away from the demons. You're fucking having a little time off and you're not even thinking about these kids that have fucking lost their demons. Honestly, what the fuck? Like, it's so evil. I can see Rich laughing at me. (laughs) The trauma that I'm inflicting on these children is really traumatising for me. (laughs) I was trying to make notes on it when I first read it and I was like, I'm actually at a bit of a loss for words at this. It's genuinely horrifying me think of me it's fucking horrendous right because at first i was like like we were just saying like um think of me and how it affects me and like it's quite funny but then i was like fucking hell on the main level of this that's horrifying that they give more of a shit about the people that are doing it might experience some trauma than the fucking kids and the demons that they're pulling apart also, if you think about it, if some people have left because of stress or taken time off because of stress, these are the people that, that witnessing the process or committing the process has broken or has they've like quit because they've been like, this is too far or whatever. Mm. The people that are left in this room are the people that have sat through the tearing and then the next stage up, the next stage up, the next, they've witnessed all the levels of atrocity yep. and they're still here. So they must be absolutely fucking horrendous people if that's the case (laughs) no oh my god yes oh fucking hell so they then give more information about the like machine and stuff so the first big breakthrough was the use of anesthesia combined with some kind of anbaric scalpel and they were able to reduce the death from shock to below five percent and then mrs coulter asks about the new instrument and then oh poor lyra she's like trembling and like pan's trying to like comfort her it's scary this is the kicker really isn't it so yes it was a curious discovery by lord asriel himself that gave us the key to the new method he discovered that an alloy of manganese and titanium was a property of insulating body from demon and then they go on to ask what happened, what's happening with Lord Azrael, and we'll get into that in a sec. But do you think then, in future chapters, we're going to see, because we don't get into it in this chapter, but do you think Lyra hearing that Azrael has had some kind of involvement with this, whether it's direct involvement with these people or whether it's just that his experiments have warranted him to look into this, do you think that's going to change her opinion of him at all? I wish it would. Um, I doubt it. She's got him on an on a very tall pedestal, and I don't think that this will take him off it in her eyes. Um, but it's it's quite a big revelation, right? That Azrael is is somehow connected to this shit. Like we obviously know he's been doing experiments. We saw the PowerPoint presentation that he gave us in the first couple of chapters. But this kind of directly, and we knew that he was interested in dust, but this kind of directly links him to what's been happening here. And we've, I don't think we've had that so far. 
Yeah, I guess because it's not made super clear if Lyra was going to rationalise it in her head, which we know she will because she loves Asriel so Mm -hmm. much. She would just go, oh, his research is in a similar field. He made a discovery and wrote a Mm -hmm. paper and they probably read it and it gave them the key because he's so much cleverer than they are. So, of course, it will have been a discovery that he made that helped them, even if what they're doing is bad. I'm sure she will rationalise the heck out of it. Um, Yeah, I'm sure. And I don't even necessarily know that it is certain that it was that he had any actual involvement or if maybe he did just publish a paper or mm. you know pass on the information but it is interesting and it's interesting to know that he understands or knows more information about the technology that they're using at the station yeah i think at that's least what, in principle yeah i think that's what i was getting at because i think so far we don't know that he's had any kind of knowledge or involvement in this like separating kids and their demons and the fact that he clearly knows that it's a thing and knows ways of how to do it potentially Uh, whether he's going to use it or not he kind of knows that it happens is quite a revelation i think yeah so after that we learn that asriel's under a suspended sentence of death because Mm -hmm. he's on we know that he's on svalbard and basically they told him that he can't like do any more of his like philosophical experiments while he's there but he has been doing them so They've basically sentenced him to death. Yes. They say that it's dangerous to let him live, which is interesting. Because we've had that before, right? Because the master wanted to poison him. That's true, yeah. It is interesting. And the fact that it's his status as whether he is on a suspended death sentence or a death sentence, the fact that that's been raised up to the consistorial court of discipline and that they're debating the question of the death sentence is kind of important i guess because it's giving just alluding to the fact that the goings on of asriel are of importance and concern to this like really high up governmental body yeah like it's having quite big political impacts that's true which probably goes over lyra's head but is interesting for the shape of the world yeah definitely and then mrs coulter like pushes the conversation back to the new separating instrument mm-hmm so they, they explain it here. So, the new instrument. We're investigating what happens when the intercision is made with the patient in a conscious state. And of course, that couldn't be possible without the mid-start process. So we've developed a kind of guillotine, I suppose you could say. The blade is made of a manganese and titanium alloy and the child is placed in a compartment, like a small cabin of alloy mesh, with a demon in a similar compartment connecting with it. When there is a connection, of course, the link remains. When the blade is brought down between them, severing the link at once, they are then separate entities. And horrendous, obviously. Vile, shocking, awful. I had a few thoughts and it's interesting and clever that it's a mix of like an old school thing and then a magical thing and, and a physical mm. thing. So it's it's a guillotine that's not cutting anything physical. It's cutting a link between a child and a demon. They've obviously had to work out a way of containing... Because I imagine the link between the people... It's not like something you can stretch out and see, like a tendon that you can Mm -hmm. slice. It's this magical link. So you have... The way that they're like, you have to physically isolate the child and the demon in a connected pod that is completely insulated and then you cut the pod in half separating them because otherwise if you were to just use like like you say like a physical guillotine the, li- mm. the link would just still exist or like because i imagine it surrounds that 
the air. It's a really, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around how it works in some ways. And it is kind of interesting to think about how you'd solve that problem if it was a problem to solve. Mm. But then when you actually physically apply that to like, this is something that's really horrific and people are working out this like fun problem solving thing on how to tear a demon away from a child. Yeah. That's not cool. (laughs) I really like the physicality of it because I think it makes it more shocking. So Mm. we can't see, as we were just saying, we can't see the link between a demon and a person, but we know it's there. And we know that demons can only go so far away from the humans before it gets a bit uncomfortable. We've seen that. We haven't ever seen a physical link between them. Like there's no rope between them or anything like that. It's something that can't be seen, but it's definitely there. And the fact that they use a guillotine to slice through it is very like, it's a solid physical object that cuts through this link. And I think the choice to do that is really clever because it, it adds more shock value to to the whole situation because it could have just been something like, oh, there's some kind of medicine you take and it, it severs a link or something like that. But Philip Pullman's like made a conscious decision to have it. It needs to be something, a physical act that even if like, so he talks about tearing, that's a physical act. He talks about like using a guillotine. That's even more physical because it's using like a solid object to cut between the link. And I just think it's really clever. Yeah, there's one of the processes they have in between the tearing and the guillotine is a scalpel. And that's the one thing that kind of throws me off, whether they're just using that as like another term for something they've used. Because a scalpel implies that there's something physical that you can feel and a doctor can slice. But then that's the same with the guillotine, right? It implies that there's something physical to cut through. Yeah. Which is what, which is what I think is really clever about it. Yeah. Because if you think about it, you could... If Lyra was stood to the left and Pan was stood to the right, you could walk through the middle of them and you wouldn't feel anything. But yeah. the fact that they're then cutting it with something, a physical object, is really interesting. And I think, again, like I've said, adds that shock value to what's happening. Yeah, the, that's to do, yeah, the way that you could walk between them is similar to how you have to, like, the reason you have to isolate them in a pod and cut the pod in half rather than trying to cut anything between them because the link I am moves and is ever present mm. it's hard to get your head around but I love I, it's an interesting problem oh Colt is just like oh cool I'd like to see it Fuck and me. I'm gonna go to bed now bye <laughs> but I'm, I'm off to bed see ya yeah pretty brutal and she also wants to see all the children tomorrow to yeah. find out who opened the door so in Lyra I imagine that in Stella's another sense of panic because if Coulter wants to see all the children that means she will get found out if Coulter is like I want to see all of these children and also I want to see a a severing an operation or whatever it's kind of instills another sense of urgency to Lyra and her plans she leaves the room and then the men stay in the room and uh, they ask what Asriel's up to and they say I think he's got an entirely different idea of the nature of dust that's the point It's profoundly heretical, you see, and the consistorial court of discipline can't allow any other interpretation than the authorised one. Also, I had to Google what um, heretical meant. (laughs) So yeah, that is uh, very interesting. So I I suppose like what I was saying earlier about um, Lyra's thoughts on on Asriel after this is that she's kind of heard this conversation now, so uh, she will know that at least Asriel has a different idea of what just means from these evil people that we are now with so i'm sure that she'll use that to be like 
I love Asriel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If they're going, ooh, dust is this thing and it's bad. He must be on a dust good point. And it's like, that's kind of not the point. I... It's also strange in this bit that they talk about Mrs. Coulter having some kind of personal connection with it. And then they say that, like, what what's their beef with the word personal? They're, they kind of act like it's like a curse word in a way. I think they're a bit like the scholars in mm. a sense that for them it is it is just science, it is just research, it's all data on a chart. That's the reason mm. they don't really care about the kids. That's the reason that they don't really n- notice anything to do with the children. And they must view the procedure as just a scientific process they're aiming to perfect and a puzzle to solve. Whereas they're saying Coulter has a personal interest and she likes, like, do you remember the first experiments when she was so keen to see them pulled apart? Oh my God. And I think they're viewing it with a cold, calculated, this is a process, we have to get it right. There will be some collateral damage. We don't care. They're saying she's taking a personal interest and she appears to be enjoying it. They describe it as almost ghoulish they're kind of implying that they can see some enjoyment of mm. in her when she's watching this pro- process which is gross didn't that just make you when i fucking read that i was like oh my god like she truly is a fucking evil character like she wants to see them being literally torn apart from their demons like where does this come from in her we need to find out more like i want to like we need more about mrs coulter and where these things come from within her because it's very shocking to hear it i think definitely and it's it adds to the danger that you see in mrs coulter we've already seen it in the monkey and with the way that she presents as so calm and so sweet and so sickly and people keep describing her with words like ghoulish or she's shown to have this interest in these things that are so violent and horrible it's part of what makes her so unnerving yeah Definitely. It's such an interesting character to be a villain. And I kind of like that, despite that, whenever you see her in a scene, whenever you see her, read her in a moment in the book, I, I still like her. Same. Which sounds really bad, doesn't it? Like, I can't... She's... That magneticness about her still applies to me as a reader when I'm reading about her I still find her interesting and intriguing as a character and I still yeah I'm drawn to her as a character definitely despite the fact that I know that she's absolutely vile and horrible but sometimes that's the most interesting thing about a character especially like as we've got so far from Mrs Coulter is that there's so much mystery around her that Mm. it does make her super intriguing and you want to learn more about what's going on in her head. And I think that that's the main reason why I'm like, yes, I want to see more of her because I want to find out more. Like, we don't know yet. We have no idea, like, what her motivations are as a character, uh, what her intentions are, like, all those kind of things. Like, we've got no backstory on her, really, apart from, obviously, the bit that we learned about Asriel and her husband. We don't know anything else about her. That's part of what makes her so intriguing as well, is how yeah. she's so powerful in this world when she is, when we don't know anything about her story. Again, I just, I really want Philip to write a Mrs. Coulter backstory novel. Yeah, me too. The Chronicles of Coulter. Yeah, same. I would It'd be so interesting. It'd be like reading American Psycho because it would have to be a lot from her perspective and she has to be a sociopath. Oh, God. Oh, fucking hell, yeah. 100%. An absolute minimum. Yeah. yeah. 
So after we learn about Mrs. Coulter wanting to see the children torn apart from their demons, this is when Lyra can't help herself and she she utters a little noise that then the people in the room hear. Mm. And then they find her in the ceiling, which is fucking terrifying. Do you know, this bit in this book is when I read this for the first time, this is a bit that stuck with me through this book. This bit of her being in the ceiling, making the noise and then finding her because I just didn't expect her to be found at this point. Oh, really? I think it's really... Yeah, yeah. I didn't... I thought that she would, like, kind of escape this moment. I didn't think that she would get caught. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, because I think we've seen her not get caught for so many things so far. I mean, obviously, she got kidnapped, but this is one of the things that's it's been Lyra's choice to make this journey, and so far, everything that she's done has turned out quite well for her, even when she got caught by Azrael in the retiring room. It still worked out well because obviously she ended up on this journey. But this one's really fucking bad that she's been caught. And I remember being so shocked that they found her in the ceiling. It's so long ago that I first read it. I can't remember if I thought she was going to get away with it or not. But this page is definitely, or this two pages, is definitely one of the main bits that sticks with me from the entire book. Yeah. Because of what will happen after this brief scuffle, which is also really really stressful to read so this is like stressful. a really stressful pair of pages to read yeah. yeah definitely so they find her in the ceiling they grab her arm and lyra's like biting him like kicking him and like punching him and i'm like yes girl you fucking do that shit she's so scrappy yeah but he he he's not letting go um and he pulls her down into the room but her legs are still kind of hooked on the metal grating things that we were talking about earlier so she's like basically hanging into the room upside down and she's still it's so intense it's so scrappy it's so stressful she's hanging she's covered in scratches from having crawled around in the ceiling in the first place it's just it's i i can't like i can't i can't describe it i'm struggling why am i struggling because it's Uh, so fucking stressful (laughs) that's why it's so intense it's such a stressful moment of her getting found out and then the scuffle that follows is so stressful and it's so gritty and it's not she got found and immediately taken away. No, she's bit this guy so hard he's drawn blood. Yeah. Like, she is literally fighting tooth and nail. Yeah. And I love that about Lyra. I love that she's so scrappy. Me too. I literally had a note that was like, I love this so much that she's just fucking fighting and fighting and fighting and she never gives up. Until one, until this horrible next bit, which makes me wanna, oh my god. She hooked her legs over the sharp edge of the metal above and struggled upside down, scratching, biting, punching, spitting in passionate fury. The men were gasping and grunting with pain or exertion, but they pulled and pulled, and suddenly all the strength went out of her. It was as if an alien hand had reached right inside where no hand had a right to be and wrenched at something deep and precious. She felt faint dizzy, sick, disgusted, limp with shock. One of the men was holding Pantalaemon. I... Get your uh, horrible hands off my pan! Fuck me. Like, shook and shooketh. Like, I knew this was going to happen, obviously, and I hate it. I hate it so much. It's so visceral Mm -hmm. and horrendous, and I think this is one of the reasons why it's been fucking hammered. I know we brought it up a lot of chapters, but it's hammered into us over and over and over again. The taboo of touching someone else's demon. We've seen it so Mm -hmm. many times. And obviously that's why it's happened to get us to this moment where somebody touches Pan and grabs him and we all have this horrendous, like, visceral reaction. 
because it's mm. been hammered home a million times that it's a taboo and that it's horrendous and that it never happens. And he does, Philip does such a good job of describing this feeling of violation yeah. Yeah. that she's experiencing. And the fact that it has that physical impact on her as well, the fact that it's almost winded her. Yeah. She feels limp. She feels like all the energy has been drained of her, which also is just like, an, it reminds me of nightmares that I've had where you can't, you can't move with intention or purpose yeah. and you, you're sluggish and you can't do anything because something's holding you back. And it puts me in mind of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. It, it's probably one of the reasons that this couple of pages sticks with me so hard is because it is so shocking to read yeah. uh, because you've got such a, such a close personal connection with Lyra and Pan by this point. You're a good two thirds of the way through the book. They're very dear to you. Yeah. And somebody's just done this thing that we know is so wrong it's really interesting that it's also not just a taboo in the same way that, like, there's a reason for the taboo. Mm-hmm. It genuinely feels wrong and disgusting and violating for somebody to touch your demon. It's not just like, oh, it's a taboo to say the word penis in public. Like, hoo, 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 it's a taboo. Like, uh, you know, tattoos are a taboo on, in some places. And it's like, it's not a taboo in those ways where it's actually something that doesn't do any harm. Mm. It's a taboo because it's awful. Yeah. It's a physical violation. Yeah. It's not out of politeness. Yeah. It is a safety thing. Yeah. God. <laughs> so they fall still. They've been captured. They can't do anything else. Oh. So then the the two uh, or the three men uh, are asking each other questions like, was she on her own? Like they wonder whether it was, if it was her that freed the demons. And they decide that they can't tell Mrs. Coulter about this. So they agree that they're going to. Basically, they allude to it that they're going to cut Lyra and Pam now. It's really stressful to read because you never get a full sentence out of either one of them, but you know where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. You know exactly where it's going and you don't need them to finish the sentence. Exactly. Yeah. And I kind of like that he's done it this way because at this point, I am reading way faster. Yeah. Than I usually read because I need to get through it because I need to know that they're okay. Exactly. And, um, I think Philip's done something really clever by clipping all those sentences short because he knows that when you're reading this, you're not, you might even be skim reading it. Yeah, exactly. Because you're so keen to get through. Definitely. And Lyra can't do anything because the guy, the fucking horrible guy is still holding Pan uh, and she has to let, basically let herself be carried through the station, which is horrendous. I hate it. And her and Pan, yeah, her and Pan's eyes never leave each other. It's the only thing they can do to, like, reassure each other in that moment when neither of them can move because they're both so weak. Yeah. And it's awful. (laughs) They go into a stainless steel chamber. It says a pain that she feels was almost physical. It was physical. Uh, And then we get, like, a description, uh, again, of the instrument, which we've already kind of had. And then this is when Lyra finds her voice again and she starts screaming. But then the fucking chamber that they're in is soundproof and it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Off the back of the FGM uh, conversation that we had last week. So I had a few thoughts about this and it really made me think about how vile it is that there's two men doing this to a little girl. There's something like very perverse about it. It's like almost unspeakably horrendous that this is happening. And I know that they don't just do it to girls in this book like we discussed last week. They do it to boys as well. But in this moment with these guys doing this to Lyra, it's just so fucking I think it's three violent. men, actually, as well. Yeah, it's three men. It's yeah. even scarier. Yeah. yeah. It's just so fucking vile and awful. And I know we just touched on it, but it's just unspeakably horrible. Like, I, 
I had a tough time reading this, to be honest. And I'm sure a lot of people have had a tough time reading this. It's a really fearful few pages. And I definitely think for women and girls reading this, especially because you identify so much with the protagonist, the fact that she is so physically overpowered by the people around her, the fact that it is men that are doing it, it does add the extra dimension of fear that occurs in a situation when you're a small, vulnerable person in in a space with men. Yeah. Absolutely. It adds to the vulnerability a lot. And the fact that so much of it has been referred to as a violation Mm -hmm. and as something that feels wrong. And especially the comment about when they're holding Pan that it's hands where they had no right to be Mm. um, really hits home. And I, yeah, I feel like it is something that could be quite triggering to read and, and quite triggering to get into. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. Because of the way that it's referred to, even though it is about something that's completely fantastical and not real, it hits home because it's written so well. Yeah, 100%. So Pan twists free of the men um, and is changing frequently into different animals. Go Pan, you're fighting so hard. I love you so much. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's like, even it's like too quick to register what he, uh, sometimes what he's changing into and he's like snarling and jumping around to avoid them. But then obviously they have demons as well and they have more demons. So they have, it's so what do they have? They have three demons, right? And Pan is just Yeah, one. they have a badger, an owl and a baboon. And a baboon is horrifying yeah. as well because they're scary ass animals. Yeah, they are, definitely. And they're trying to pin Pan down and then Lyra's screaming at them. It's, this is interesting. Lyra's screaming at the demons, like asking why they're doing that because they are demons. I found this kind of interesting though because why would Lyra assume that the demons would have opinions that were any different to their humans because technically they're the same people. This is it's true. Yeah, it's very true. I I didn't think about that. I just kind of read it as they're trying to pin her demon down. They're going to do this horrendous thing. Why would these demons want this thing to happen? But then you're completely right because then the other side of that question is then why would these humans want this to happen? Yeah. Like, in theory, they've all got the same motivations yeah. because they're one entity. Yeah. Like, they're, even if they are separate bodies. Maybe it's just... So I don't know why they'd have different motivations. Maybe she's just desperate. She's just trying everything. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah. She kicks again and manages to get free. And Pantalaemon sprang towards her like a spark of lightning and she clutched him fierce to her breast and he dug his wildcat claws into her flesh and every stab of pain was dear to her. I love that so much. Yeah. And we get more of these um, like little quotes like that as this chapter like comes to the, comes to an end. We kind of see Lyra and Pan like really clutching onto each other, and and showing that love for each other and that kind of need to be near each other after this horrendous thing has like almost just happened to them. The fact that it's so fierce and every stab of pain, it's such a intense form of love as well, mm. which I find really interesting that she she loves him so hard it hurts because he's a part of her yeah yeah exactly and And then this yeah and then this next bit is kind of what you were just talking about it 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 says that there were three big brutal men and she was only a child it's just awful it is and it's changed them from having been in the beginning of the chapter in that meeting they're quite cold yeah they're scientists they pale by comparison to coulter in terms of she is very definitely in control and they are scared of her mm. and now they're exerting it's like a line of power yeah she's exerted her power over them in a way that's very calm and controlled and they're exerting their power over this powerless child in a way that is so brutal that it 
in a lot of ways you could see it as them being perhaps more brutal than they even need to be because they're covering up a mistake yeah. to get away with something perhaps because they don't like the chain of power mm. in the way that it stands they don't like that they've just been told off for a thing they've done wrong and perhaps part of silencing Lyra as well and the brutality of it is them taking out their inadequacy on her a bit definitely I think that is definitely the case and I think as well it's we were kind of talking about how these like men in white coats in the last chapter seen as Jordan scholars and we were kind of like jerking about how they were kind of like white middle class men and all this shit and like now they're being described as being these three big brutal men and I think that is something that is very relatable as a woman so you can you can see someone as being this certain type of person and then they end and then but underneath it they do have a physicality that can be very brutal that I think is mm-hmm. sometimes overlooked by their demeanor or how they act or how they dress but underneath that there are some people that do have that like brute horrendous physicality definitely and just the physical they are physically bigger than her so no matter how mild mannered they are they possess the power that they can if they choose to they can use that power against her which is what is happening now like no matter how mild mannered you are if you're physically bigger and stronger than somebody you can choose to abuse that power that you would have over that person through that physicality yeah definitely so i don't like it i do like that she bloodied one of their noses well done lyra pan for bloodying one of their bloody noses they deserve it yeah (laughs) yes so they're thrown into either side of the cage pan and lyra and then uh, the guy that has a bloody nose kind of starts flipping some switches around and the silver blade starts to rise and there's a horrendous quote here the last moment in her complete life was going to be the worst by far yeah it just killed me a little bit that line mm-hmm. i loved it and hated it all at this and i loved it hated it and appreciated it the cleverness of it all at the same time <laughs> loved it hated it appreciated it <laughs> yeah exactly exactly i yeah yeah I've said this before, I think Philip Pullman's an amazing writer and I think he just proves it time and time and again. Yeah, it took me a moment to process that line as well because I was like, in her complete life, well, she's not dead, so what does he mean in her complete life? Like, she's not completed it. Oh, he means as a whole person. Yeah, exactly. It took, like, a moment to register because it's not something that you're used to reading and then it kind of hurts more because it takes that moment to register exactly, it. yeah, definitely, yeah. And then we hear a light musical voice again and it wants to know what's going on. And everything stops and she asks who the child is but she doesn't make it to the end of that sentence because she realizes it's lyra and this is kind of a point where we see a little bit of humanity in mrs coulter right because she has like a bit of a moment where she like totters and clutches a bench because she's so in shock it's the last person she expected to see yeah in the whole world yeah and her face goes from beautiful and composed to haggard and horror-struck And this really is the first time we've seen anything like that from Mrs. Coulter. I kind of love it. Mm. And I love that the face of her salvation in this moment is the face of the person she has been hiding from this whole chapter. A hundred percent. I love, I love it so much. It's like out of the frying pan and into the fire, but it's not, it's out of the fire and into the frying pan because at least the threat of culture is slightly less dangerous yeah yeah that's true yeah and the little uh, monkey prick isn't being that much of a monkey prick this time because he does get pan out of the other side 
of the cage. But Pan is like, get the fuck off me. <laughs> get your horrible monkey hands yeah. off me at the same time because he the, the monkey is solicitous paws, Ugh, which I yeah. love the, that wording because it is just like, fine, you're helping me, but I don't like you and you can stop touching me now. <laughs> yeah, Pan is like, do not fucking touch me. How fucking dare? Yeah. And they're hugging each other and uh, pressed his beating heart to hers. They clung together like survivors of a shipwreck, shivering on a desolate coast. Oh, God. (laughs) They've just been through this really traumatic thing and I I can't even imagine the relief that she's feeling. Mm. But then you throw in the fact that she's probably so fucking confused about who saved her. Well, yeah, because we get get this bit now, don't we, where it's like she... They're just kind of, they dimly hear Mrs. Coulter like talking to the men and then all of a sudden they're being like carried out by Mrs. Coulter and end up in her bedroom and it's like, well, how the fuck did that happen? Obviously they're in a frame of mind or space to be like, shit. They're just like, they have to let it happen. They're just not processing it. I love that the way that the sentences are structured Mm. because we're just getting little snippets of information. We know that they were leaving the room they were along a corridor, there was a door, a bedroom, a scent in the air, a soft light. And it's like, that's all she's able to process right now because yeah. she's so traumatized. Yeah. And that's so, is so well conveyed in the way that it's written. Yeah. Because that's all you need to know is the like, it smells nice. The light is there. She's safe-ish. She's got pan. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Mrs. Coulter strokes her head and asks how she came to be there. And this is quite motherly of her. And, and I was going to ask you if you think it's sincere. I think oh, we, we, we're totally going to get into this as well in the next chapter, for sure. But I, I genuinely think she does care for Lyra. Mm. And I genuinely, the fact that we've seen her completely lose that composure that she's had so far through the entire book when she saw Lyra there makes me believe she does mm. genuinely care for Lyra yeah. in some way. Yeah, this chapter has definitely made me think that she does have some, have some kind of care for Lyra. I think this is the first time personally that I've seen it, but I've definitely seen it in this chapter. Yeah. Definitely. But yeah, that's the end of that chapter. Fuck me, what a oh chapter. My God. Happy fucking lockdown <laughs> quarantine people. The the third stressful chapter and the fourth stressful chapter in a I, row. I can't that I've we've lost brought to you. I've lost count. <laughs> we've been stressed for a while. Um yeah. Thank fuck they made it through. There's a lot to process in this chapter and I have a lot of feelings. And as you may have noticed, as the chapter has gone on, my feelings have become more intense and my words have become less good. Yeah, I- I'm the same. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm on a bit of a weird level today. So if I don't make any sense, I apologise. But this chapter, right, we spoke about it a little bit last chapter, but taking Mrs. Coulter away and then bringing her back was such a fucking good decision by Philip Pullman because... It gives her that air of mystery. You become scared, more scared of her because Lyra's more scared of her and Lyra's like constantly thinking about how scared she she is of her. So bringing her back and in this chapter and giving her very little time with Lyra as well. Like we see Lyra spying on her and we see Lyra like looking at her from the canteen, but we only get that very last bit where they actually connect again. Mm. And I think... That's such a clever way of bringing a character back, but then still building up the tension because they've not actually had, they've not had it out yet, have they? They've not been like, you know that Mrs. Coulter's going to have something to say to Lyra or do to Lyra about Lyra running away and Lyra's terrified. We haven't had that interaction with them yet. 
Yeah, the last time they spoke was in the cocktail party. That's chapter five, and we are on chapter 16. Yeah. They've not interacted for like 11 chapters. Yeah, and they still really haven't. And who knows if we'll see it happen in the next chapter. And yeah. I love it. I love it so much. I love that she's an ever-present threat. Yeah. But then there's so many more more real threats around in the world, and yet she is so dominant a presence in that. Definitely. Are you going to tell us what the next chapter is called, Rich? That's always your job now. <laughs> oh, yeah. The next chapter is the witches. I'm so excited. Oh, this, my God. It sounds like there might be some witches. Do you think it will be less stressful? <laughs> Bloody well, I hope so, but I doubt it. Uh, we'll see. No, I think there's not that many chapters left, Faye. I know, when you're in the end. There's, there's, less, than, there's less than 10. There's 23 chapters in this book. We've not got that many chapters left. Wow. And the last chapter is really short as well. Like... Also, I keep remembering how far we still have to go. Mm. Oh, yeah. There's so much that's going to happen in this next few chapters. Get ready, everyone. Get fucking ready. We're into, like, every story arc has, like, beginning, middle, end. We're into, like, the end portion of the story arc for this book. But this book is just the beginning of a (laughs) three-book trilogy. Ah! So excited. Oh, God, so exciting. Do you have an award to give out? Oh, my God. I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, it has to be for Pan. It has to be. Pan rules my heart and I love him so much and he fought so hard and he's just been through such a dramatic experience that I I can't not give him the award. Like I feel more connected than ever to Pan right now. Yeah. And I have a lot of feelings about the fact that Philip has made me so attached <laughs> to this character. Oh, I feel that. Pan, you fought real hard yeah, and I fucking you love you. Who is your award for? Uh, mine is for Annie. Ah, yeah, for being so brave and just being such a good friend. She really wants to go with Lyra, and I don't know whether she just hasn't thought about it or she doesn't care. But she's like, "Yeah, I want to go with you." Like, no questions asked, and mm-hmm. it's just such a great thing to do as a friend. And yeah, being super brave. I had a little theory about Annie that. Perhaps she was like the queen bee of the group before uh, Lyra came along and that maybe she the reason that she wants to also go with Lyra is because she's slightly vying for dominance in the group. Oh, maybe. I didn't read it like that. Because but... I see her as like a tiny rival for Lyra, but mm. in, a, in a way that like they're both still trying to be friends. That's, yeah, I like that. But also I love reading it as she's just a really good friend as well because yeah. she is. I like both readings, actually. I'd not thought of, of the reading that you said, but I think I would have still given her the award if I had read it in that way so thanks so much for listening to this very stressful episode of Her Dark Materials you can find us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook at HDMPod and you can email us at HerDarkMaterialsPod at gmail.com and we bloody love email If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. I'm Faye, and when I'm not talking about Lyra and Pan and stressing out about Lyra and Pan, I'm probably writing. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Fayley, which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y. And if you want to read some of my blog posts, I'm on medium at faye.ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about demons and dust, I'm making designer toys, art, and illustrations. 
You can find me over on Instagram at rachemakes, on Twitter at rach underscore makes, and over on my online shop, rachemakes.co.uk. A huge thank you to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings and teaching me the scary tech stuff. We'll see you in a week's time, and don't forget, keep telling stories, and all will be well. yourselves this was a really intense chat yeah, please do stay safe we love you bye 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 bye